You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson here with my co-host, Rob Nahoopi. Hoopy, what's going on, man? Wow. I'm just I'm just recovering from back-to-back conferences with 340B Coalition last week, went to, went to Health Trust University this past week, and uh, it's been busy. It's been a busy July. Yeah, I always think like going into the, like the month of July, you know, we don't have as many audits usually in July. I always think it's going to be a slow, easy month. And with <laughs> Coalition and other stuff going on, it's always... Uh, it just ends up not being as slow as I would maybe yeah. like it to be. So, yeah, vacations. Yeah, not a lot of stuff in the 340B news. I mean, back in May, it feels like every day there was some new development, whether it was related to manufacturer restrictions or the expiration of the PAG or some HRSA audit results that we we're hearing back. It feels like that was a real bit of a flurry back then, but things have quieted down in terms of 340B news, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, even the legislative cycles winding down for July yeah. in July, and um, you know, we definitely ex- thought we'd hear a little bit more. Um, and there's some, there's some, so we can save that as we get more information. You know, whether it's the, we, we're not going to go deep today into legislation um, uh, because it's a lot of preliminary stuff. Um, the Senate, there is a Senate companion bill to the McMorris Rogers bill, so probably save that for the next episode when we know more about that. Um, you know, Doris Matsui's uh, bill, uh, 340 Patient Act, not. Act not out yet, so um, want to be able to read that so we can present that. So yeah, we're kind of in a holding pattern on the legislative side, although that's definitely still one of the busier components. But my guess is Congress is also slowing down for the for the summer. So yeah, well, I think since we last talked, we do have another manufacturer that's been added to the list of pharmaceutical companies that are implementing restrictions on the contract pharmacy side. So we're at number twenty-four, Estellis uh, implementing some restrictions. Tell us a little bit about what is going to happen with uh, Estellis products at the contract pharmacy level. Yeah, they're they're taking the similar approach to most of the recent manufacturers. So they're not doing the, the ESP data sent to get your contract pharmacies back. So this is a situation where for the most part, contract pharmacies um, sort of being taken away. Um, they, they, like all the other manufacturers, are allowing a single contract pharmacy um, to 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 be added if you don't have an in-house retail pharmacy. Um, and like many of the recent ones, they're not allowing for the health system one exception. So a health system pharmacy, if it's a contract pharmacy, then that can be your one contract pharmacy if you don't have an in-house retail. Um, so, so some of the similar stuff that we're seeing, very restrictive um, and uh, just yep, another another one to the list. This is getting big. Our, we have a nice table that we provide to our clients and I think we're gonna have to go to two pages here shortly. Yeah. Yeah, somebody needs to tell these manufacturers we're running out of room on a on an eight and a half by eleven piece of paper. So, <laughs> right. Um, and, and I think we may may or may not have mentioned it, but uh, Boringer Ingelheim uh, did remove the health system owned exception as well. Um, and I think the other thing they did was they, uh, I, th- I believe they expanded um, their process to include the grantees. So yeah, grantees are now in scope of the restrictions. So it's a little, little painful there. So a couple updates there on the manufacturer list. Again, if uh, you're a client, please reach out if you want to update a table. Um, we, we can provide that. Um, we always include it as part of our uh, opening conference for, for audits as well. But And if you're not a client and want our table, let us know. Uh, just send us an email. And um, at, wait, wait, let me try. At 340B unscripted at spendmen.com. Yeah. Yeah. You got it. First time. 
12 months in, we got the, the email straight. It's a good year. Yeah. We, we get some chatter on the email. So I appreciate everybody that reaches out. We've had some listeners reach out asking for some clarification of things we've said, asked us to share some of the, the tools and the documents that we've, we've talked about. So always appreciate getting some feedback through the email. So thank you. All right. Another hot topic. We covered this during the last episode, but still generating a lot of chatter. Covered entities are trying to kind of wrap their hands around the CMS Medicare Part B remedy that has a CMS put out a proposed rule. Uh, it's going to include a, a lump sum repayment to impacted uh, covered entities probably by the end of 2023, maybe early 2024 uh, for anyone that was impacted by the, the Medicare Part B cuts that started back in 2018. Rob, what, what have been some of the conversations or the talking points that that you've heard in uh, conversations with covered entities that are, are looking forward to this? Yeah, I, and I, I guess, you know, and again, I didn't, ask, we always like to ask permission of our clients before they share their name and I didn't, um, and they might, they'd probably be fine, but I want to be respectful. But uh, one of our clients, a large health system has a monthly 340B call and uh, it's a great call. They have all their 340B leaders, big health systems, lots of regional um, 340B leads, and then also the 340B staff. So, I mean, they get quite a few people on this call. Yeah, great um, engagement. That's always nice to see when you got a whole slew of people that are interested and in, in willing to hop on and uh, entertain discussion around 340B. Excellent. It's really good. And, and if I can share, so th for the people who are part of this health system, they'll know who they are and just want to say, first of all, hats off to a wonderful monthly meeting they do every single month. They bring in their government relations person and um, that person does an update. She does a big update for everybody in government relations, which is nice because I get to hear it from the government relations side. Often I have similar content, but I'm talking about it from the 340B operations and frontline side. And and we really kind of, it go, it's really nice to talk about it from both perspectives. Um, today we had um, their their payer one of their payer staff on, and he does a fantastic job. And I learned I learned some things, so I'm going to share some of that. Um, I also learned some of these things. Um, I happened to uh, at Dorn Health Trust went to the 340B session. Um, hopefully, going to be able to present at that next year for anyone who's Health Trust. But uh, but good group um, that presented. One of our clients, uh, John Choi, presented uh, from Centra. So really good to see and hear him. Um, also, um, you know, just just the staff over. Um, uh, at uh, at uh, Health Trust, um, Emily Cook um, was there, so I got to pick her brain a little bit. She's one of the um, really really solid attorneys in the 340B space, and so um, during that, I did had opportunity to ask her a couple things, but then also on the call today with this health system, just clarified some things. So so one thing uh, we we have to clarify, if you remember last week or two weeks ago, um, when we talked about um, you know what is the reduction that uh, CMS is going to do to recoup in their budget neutrality, the dollars that they're going to pay people back for the payment for the initial uh, OPPS payment reduction. And I had something, some weird 3 point some percent. Greg, of course, said at 0.5%. I think most of you probably know by now that Greg is correct as usual. Um, so I'm going to be the one to to clearify that it is in fact 0.5% reduction over 16 years for non-drug spend. Um, the government payer that was on the call for the health system call I was on um, was sharing some things and we were talking back and forth on the call about it. But um, that uh, that uh, payment reduction is not dissimilar from how they paid the money back on, on that same spend. It has to do with the ratios and everything else. Um, so did want to clarify 0.5%. The other interesting thing that he brought up, um, they we, we looked at some of the numbers, right, because it's publicly available. We shared the link last time. You can look at your hospital's numbers if, if you did get reduced reimbursement. But they also did some discernment on how much is the managed Medicaid impact, because managed Medicaid's not part of the payback. Yeah. And so I thought that was a good discussion that as an organization, you, you know, if there's a way you should calculate, well, how much did you lose from the managed Medicaid that you had reduced payment? 
And, you know, Medi- Medicare Advantage, not Managed Medicaid. This oh, my gosh. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Sorry. Medicare. I don't know why I got Managed Medicaid. Oh, it's because of the, the, the bills. Thank you for correcting me. See, we'd have to correct the next next week if, if I, <laughs> we didn't get that correct. Thank you, Greg. Um, manage Medicare, right? Manage Medicare. If if you were impacted by that, you know, what is that? So for this organization, it was it was a decent amount. And that's not part of the payback. And so that's an interesting component because, right, I think manage Medicare is going to be reluctant to pay back at this point because it's going to impact them financially. Yeah. And um, and so that's a big question mark. What's going to go on with that? Is that just a loss? Mm-hmm. Is there a way to recoup some of that? So definitely something to be having conversations about um, and to pay attention to. The the last thing related to that that um, that I thought was was an interesting call out is in 2022 when you rebuild, right, for those that had to rebuild the the first three quarters of 2022 in order to get to recoup the ASP plus six percent delta from the ASP minus 22 and a half percent that actually triggered um and I, I didn't even think about this till they mentioned it actually triggered a rebill and that rebill because a lot of Medicare patients pay a percentage copay actually increased patients copay so that was kind of that wasn't great right that you have to go back to patients and say hey Medicare got the number wrong we rebuilt it so now you're you're 20% copay is actually higher. So that's that was kind of probably a negative for patients to have to go through that. And so the question that someone on the call asked, which is, again, so engaging this team, it, it was under a great question was, well, is there going to be a financial impact to patients with this lump sum? Like, is there going to be something that says, oh, yeah, all these bills have to, not patients have this. And of course, with a lump sum payment, not really ideal for that, which is really, really good news because we don't want to have to go back and ask patients from years ago for a payment. Neither do I think people are going to pay. And so, so what our understanding is that the full payment that, that was missed is all part of this lump sum payment. And so there won't be patients that are going to be asked to pay some of these copays. So I thought that was good news and something I actually hadn't even thought about. So really appreciate it for them. Appreciate them bringing that up. Rob, this, uh, we, we didn't talk about this beforehand, but i ask your opinion. So if covered entities looking at that list, they're trying to project what the lump sum payment is going to be. And it doesn't match up with what they believe they are owed. And when there's a discrepancy, what what's the path for covered entities to communicate to CMS? Hey, we don't we don't think you guys are going to be paying us the right lump sum payment. Is that uh, through the submission of comments that CMS is is uh, soliciting with the proposed rule? Yeah, I, I you know I can't as from my understanding, there's not a better mechanism right now uh, yeah. other than the comment period. So as a reminder, we're you know they're going to have this they have the 60 day comment period. Um, I think that's the best way to do it. And, and the government payer mentioned the same thing. They did their own analysis um, for their hospitals mm-hmm. and, and it wasn't exact. So, right. So I agree with you. There is this discrepancy in, in what people thought they got um, shorted versus what's showing up in that payment. Still a, a good number is what his comment was still really close, but not not the same. So I, I think if it is significant, that'd probably be a good time in the comment period is to, to ask to better understand and say, hey, our number is different from this number. Can we get clarification on how that was calculated? Yeah, because those comments um, yeah, I'm not aware of, those yeah. comments end up on public records. So I think at the minimum you'd want to submit comments that indicate, hey, look, we, we don't feel we're getting the right repayment here. And um there there may be kind of uh a, a dispute resolution process established based on comments of people saying, Hey, look, we're we're not seeing the right numbers. Right. And I think if enough people do that, then I think that's something they're gonna have to look at before they finalize those payment numbers, or at least be able to share kind of how they calculate it, which would be nice. Yeah. All right, good. I think that's it for CMS updates. You know, th- this week, we're going to, again, focus on our ongoing kind of unpacking of info that we've got from the coalition a couple of weeks back. A um, couple of other shout outs, Rob. You know, we, we talked about some of the clients and friends that presented um, when we last met. Who, who did we miss? Who else do we want to highlight this week? 
Yeah. So first of all, when we did it the other week, we we it was just from memory. We hadn't written anything down. And as I was going through, I was like, oh my gosh, we you know because you can only go to one session at a time, so you're kind of picking and choosing. Um, felt like you know. Um, uh, Alex Soto, a good friend of ours, um, did, did a hospital recertification. I think she was also in one of the pre-conference workshops. Uh, Nick Knott from um, Unity Point did a hospital roundtable with Mitali. So she was in a couple sessions. She was busy on contract pharmacy restrictions. And uh, Victoria Hansen did a duplicate discount um, discussion from Providence. So really excited for her to, to be able to present, get her information on duplicate discount. Um, and, uh, and, and as I just got to remind everybody, of course, we had Greg Wilson, which I know we mentioned, but I'm going to mention again, did his hospital location eligibility, which, uh, provided really good information and, and, and had a good turnout. So, um, and, uh, and what we should share is the, you know, we're keeping this one a little short today because, um, over the next, we still have got a little bit of time. We're recording this a little early. Um, uh, we have some vacations and, and, and audits coming up. So. We're going to actually be, we have some of our, our the people we mentioned um, have offered to give us some summaries of what they presented at Coalition. And so what you're going to be hearing next is some of these summaries and some of our own staff um, sharing kind of what they learned as well. So we, we think this would be nice to, to hear it straight from the people who presented and were there and, and hopefully that'll be great. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, we're going to take a break here in a minute. So on the back end of this episode, you'll get some great sound bites from folks that presented at Coalition as well as some of the Spendman staffs that went and uh, listened in on lots of the, the educational sessions. Uh, before, Rob, you and I hop off here, uh, we just want to share, we're approaching one year of the 340B Unscripted podcast. So in celebration of doing this for 12 months now, <laughs> um, we're going to do a, a kind of a Q&A episode. So you'll see in the show notes and you'll see out on our social media platforms, some requests for folks to submit questions. We're going to, you know, it's kind of like a, an Ask Rob Anything that you see on on Reddit. Uh, any questions that you want to ask Rob that he can answer? Well, wait, wait, wait. It's not just ask Rob, it's ask Rob and Greg. Well, I'm gonna ask the questions and you're gonna answer them. I think that's our format. We haven't talked about that format, but I'm making that decision right now, so. That was, okay, I, yeah. I didn't hear that part yet. <laughs> Yeah, so you, you, uh, for those of you listening, and if you're, if you're interested, you know, we're going to do a, a Q&A episode coming up here in a couple of weeks. August 14th is our plan to, to publish that. It's about a, a year or so out from our first episode. Um, we'll have a couple of different pathways for you to submit questions that you want us to, to entertain during the podcast. So uh, thanks in advance to those that are going to submit questions. We've had some folks already reach out with some questions they want us to talk about. So really do appreciate the engagement that we're getting from everybody that listens to the podcast and really hope that you find this to be a really informative and somewhat entertaining thing to listen to every two weeks. Well, and and so it sounds like um, Aiden's going to send uh, via the – if you get an email on our podcast, you'll get an email with a questionnaire on it. I think we're going to put a link in the show notes uh, for the podcast if um, if you're not on the on the on on our podcast email list, if you want to ask some questions. You could always email um, 340BUnscripted at spendman.com as well to sub submit your questions. Um, we're going to do it anonymous. So that way you can um, – we won't put anybody out there on the spot if you're asking questions and if people feel more open to it. Of course, I guess if you really want your name read, just say, hey, I don't mind if you mention if – you, if you say where it came from, I guess then we could do that. But we thought we'd just you know, keep it safe so that uh, people didn't have to worry about you know, what kind of questions they're asking. But love to answer any questions that you have. Um, and I will say, just you know, coming up on a year, just want to thank everybody for listening. The um, amount of response we get when we when at, at Health Trust, at Coalition, just talking to people has been phenomenal, and we really appreciate it. I think Greg and I didn't know where this podcast was going to go 
a year ago, we said, well, let's just give it a shot, see what happens. And um, and we think with the response and so many people saying how much they really like listening to it, um, we are going to continue. And, uh, you know, we don't have a plan to stop. So I just appreciate everyone for listening and providing comment and letting us know that you you like the podcast. That that means a lot to us. Yeah, totally agree. All right, Rob, it was good catching up with you again. We're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, you get to hear from some of our friends that were at Coalition and get a recap of what they talked about. Stay tuned, everyone. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by Spendman Pharmacy. Have you started using a referral capture solution to help maximize 340B program savings? Spendman Pharmacy delivers the industry's leading solution to help you identify existing and new referral capture opportunities. Our team manages and meets all HRSA expectations, so you'll never be at risk. Visit spendmen.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how a referral capture solution can help drive 340B savings for your organization. Hey everyone, I'm here with Jennifer Hagen from the Spendmen Pharmacy team. Hey Jennifer, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Craig. Nice to speak with you. Nice to catch up with you as well. Just back from Coalition a week or so out now. Indeed. And catching up, doing well. Um, had a great experience at, at this year's coalition. It was a fantastic meeting, had excellent opportunity for networking and some great education opportunity. And, you know, I think I, I listened to your last podcast, Greg, and where you mentioned perhaps this, this meeting was a little bit less attended, but I got to yeah. say, I still had a great experience. And if anything, I actually had more time for detailed discussion with folks and, and did a lot of deep dive into some great topics that, that are some really hot topics right now. So I thought it was just a fantastic meeting. Uh, good shout out to 340B Health for uh, uh, and, and for everybody, for the 340B Coalition for, for this fantastic conference and opportunity. Yeah, we kind of speculated that, you know, I think they, they shared that the, the attendee numbers were, were down a little bit from Winter Coalition. Um, some speculation around that, you know, NAC obviously not not represented. Uh, so the CHC community kind of took a pass on the Summer Coalition. Also, the Winter Coalition was later in the winter than normally. So it's only been a few months since the last coalition. And finances are tight at a lot of the hospital and health systems out there. So, you know, maybe there's travel budgets that folks are, are working around. So there's probably a number of factors that kind of drove down attendance this year. But I guess just in terms of the the tone or the vibe, any any comparisons to previous year's coalition conferences that you picked up on? You know, with the tone, the vibe, just maybe tone, uh, caution, just a little more caution in perhaps in in some of the information being shared yeah. at the sessions, I would say. I mean, I think we want to just use some caution in information that we're sharing with uh, regard to some of the program optimization and uh, how we are trying to make sure that our programs are able to to be able to utilize savings that they're able to receive, which, um, you know, is, is the, the biggest hot topic, I think, regarding manufacturer restrictions, which, which is really affecting a lot of our clients and, and how they're able to serve their patients. And yeah. so 
this is is really hurting a lot of the safety net. Um, you know, and and even in speaking to maybe not having as much of grantees there, there were still quite a few FQHCs grantees there and had a lot of great conversation uh, with those folks. Uh, still, everybody is working toward what are we doing to make sure we have compliant programs. Yeah. I, I think that covered entities are doing whatever they can to make sure we are being good stewards of the program, you know, to make sure that this program remains viable and so that we can continue to do what we can to help the patient. So I guess that's that's the vibe. That's what I was seeing. Yeah, yeah. I, I picked up on that as well. Just a sense of maybe hesitation sharing some of the strategic initiatives because, you know, I think maybe it was um Tim Gentlecore is one of our friends from Spartanburg shared during one of a uh, I don't know if it was a roundtable session, but it's almost like a cat and mouse game right now. You know, manufacturers implement restrictions, the covered entities try to uh, mitigate those restrictions by you know, implementing different initiatives and folks are apprehensive to kind of disclose or share what they're doing just because there seems to be a lot of moving targets out there, both in terms of how to optimize your program and what you can do compliantly. Yeah, there, there is, there's the apprehension, but I will say there is still passion. I mean, there is passion in the sense that this is really affecting yeah. patients. And so that the the passion in the sense that something still needs to be done. So, you know, we want to get the point across that, yeah, there, there may be some, some quietness, some, some apprehension, et cetera, but there is a lot of passion out there that now is the time to let your legislators know how this is affecting your program and that action needs to be taken to protect the program, the covered entities, and to get this pricing back. So um, yeah, there, there was a lot of passion as well. Great point. One session that you got to go to that I missed um, was the Apexis-sponsored luncheon for 340B ACE uh, experts. So any any tidbits to share from the, the Apexis lunch? Yeah, so this was the second luncheon. So last year, the, the format of the luncheon was is they had uh, some folks who would share information. And then this year, it was a little bit different. Now it was more of, hey, let's get up and talk amongst peers regarding hot topics. And then all of the subject matter experts from Apexis would be there to be able to proctor conversations. And so there were different uh, high top tables to get around and, and you could move throughout these different tables and, and engage in different conversations. And I had the opportunity to be involved in a couple of different conversations that were, were just fantastic. And this, this was really beneficial, I thought, to have this time as ACEs who are educated in the program and are, you know, at this advanced level that really want to take some time to deep dive into some subjects that really are important to them. And so one of them um, I thought was really interesting is on, and it was from an FQ who was asking who has a right to uh, claim the prescription accumulation in a certain situation where, you know, we would like, you know, to be able to increase our savings opportunity by having 
perhaps a situation where we have a patient that we are responsible for, and then this patient might go to an emergency department and and get a prescription, you know, and then if this patient comes back to our in-house pharmacy, yes, that's our accumulation, but what if this patient now goes to a contract pharmacy? And then who would have the right to that prescription? You know, then there's some certain other pieces that you need to consider, such as does the hospital, is that hospital covered entity? And then, you know, they would be contracted with the same pharmacy as you, and then they would have rights to that prescription. But otherwise, there's some other things that you can consider in that scenario and working with the hospital, you know, to see who would have first rights or working something out. So it was a pretty good conversation. Do you have any comments on that, Greg? Like, have you worked with folks on that as well? Yeah, you see that. I, I, I've seen that at least, you know, for the maybe the health system, not necessarily the, I don't work with the grantees as much, but health systems that have multiple hospitals that serve as covered entities. You know, HRSA looks at these programs at the hospital level. So not across, you know, a whole health system with commonly owned hospitals in aggregate. So it does become a challenge trying to determine, okay, which covered entities, you know, owning responsibility of care. And there's really not a lot of guidance out there in terms of, um, you know, cl clarity in the statute or even in sub-regulatory guidance that HRSA has published that gives covered entities some instruction on how to, how to manage that. So it really has to, I, I think it comes down to policies and procedures and kind of your collaboration kind of independently with, with those other maybe competing covered entities that are, you know, caring for your patient population. You know, another one, we had another good conversation was in in regard to a covered entity having some difficulty with being able to get pricing for a drug on a WAC account, but then having the ability to get pricing of a drug on a 340B account, and then what to do in that scenario. And so it it was interesting because we have had different ways of what you would do from the perspective of in, in this roundtable discussion from two different covered entities and then also having Sarah Lee there at the discussion to give us um, what would be the most compliant answer to that question. And so it was just a really valuable discussion to hear. And so it was a really good experience. Um, you know, have you, 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 have you heard some regarding that scenario, you know, not being able to get pricing on a WAC account? Yeah. Do we want to get into any of that during this discussion? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, you know, I think it's challenging because, you know, I think some of the commentary out there is that if you can't, you know, if it's, if, if it's your pharmacy and it's uh, a non-eligible patient, but you can't access your, your WAC account or you don't have WAC pricing, you know, I think some of the suggestion out there is that you may have to turn those patients away and that, that that's got to be a hard thing to do so i don't know what other you know strategies or what other operational considerations might might be considered but you know i know that was one of the Let, one of the approaches see, to that problem right we'll, we'll suffice to say that we have some other strategies and perhaps we won't put that live on this podcast but Greg, what is the, what is the, let's give the email with which, you know, if there's further questions, you can reach out to us and we'd be happy to discuss this scenario. Yeah. So any, any podcast topics that folks want us to, to banter about the email is 340B 
unscripted at spendmen.com. So if you've been listening and, and you have thoughts around this issue of pricing and availability, we'd love to hear hear feedback from folks out there. All Any right. other hot topics at the uh, Apexis luncheon? Well, let's see. So, you know, for the luncheon, I think there there was some great conversation about different eligibility scenarios. Um, so, you know, just would pop my head in on other various great conversations. I think another one, there was some staffing, you know, sort of questions, just other general hot topics. It was just really fantastic just to hear what people were, uh, were discussing in general. So yeah, great. Um, highly recommend people taking the time to go to this luncheon in the future. And whether it will be at every single coalition or only during the summer one, we're not sure, but keep your uh, eyes and ears open and just a fantastic resource. Great, great insight. Any other uh, sessions that you went to, any shout outs to clients or friends out in the 340B community that presented that you, you want to plug here? Well, I went to a hospital roundtable discussion, and this roundtable discussion was on sharing experiences with contract pharmacy restrictions. And so I just want to give a shout out. So the speakers were Simona Descupta from, uh, and I apologize if I'm going to murder anybody's names right up front here, apologies, but Washington Medical Center and then Matale Desai, UMass, and then Nicanot Unity Point and Michael Loftus from Mercy Health. And so this was just a really good session where they were discussing the challenges unique to each of their programs. And uh, so it was great conversation also around alternate distribution models and the, you know, I'm not going to get into a lot about that, but there was a brief discussion that was brought up by Bill Von Olsen around utilizing wholly owned pharmacies under one IDN as ship to pharmacies, you know, um, which there was reference by the 340B health person moderating the discussion where it is currently under review by HRSA post an audit finding yeah. where we all know that you can't list a pharmacy that is not just individually owned by your covered entity as a ship to pharmacy. But the question is, if you have pharmacies that are ID own, IDN owned, why couldn't you yeah. list them as ship to pharmacies to be able to get some of that pricing back and that perhaps um, HRSA hasn't weighed in as a final decision yet. Maybe this is something that is being considered and maybe it just needs to be considered on how IDN entity-owned pharmacies might be compliant. Like there was at one point where HRSA was trying to consider uh, how you could list uh, different pharmacies, you know, more so than ship to, but list them within OPACE and actually show ownership at that time, maybe that's something to think about in the future. I don't know, Greg, do you have anything yeah. more to weigh in on that? No, I mean, I think that's going to be, I'm curious to see how HRSA addresses ship to verifications during the upcoming recertification. So, you know, we've talked last year, they added to the DRL, the HRSA audit DR, data request list. They want 
upfront verification of all your entity owned pharmacies. So you got to provide proof of ownership, you know, whether it's a pharmacy license or certificate of liability insurance, or even just like a screen cap from the Medicare cost report that shows that pharmacy's um, uh, expenses. But I, I think you're right. We've got, there's really three different stratifications of retail pharmacies that can be supporting your 340B program. Wholly owned by the hospital retail pharmacies, commonly owned health system pharmacies that service your hospital, and then external pharmacies that are, again, conventionally registered as, as uh, contract pharmacies. So those wholly owned, hospital-owned pharmacies we know are listed as shipping addresses. The external pharmacies are you know, contract pharmacies, what do we do with those commonly owned retail pharmacies that fall under, you know, common ownership of, uh, you know, umbrella corporation for the health system, but aren't maybe allocated on the hospital's Medicare cost report. I'd be curious to see how that plays out. Yes. And then I might also mention that even you and I, a little later that night, post this session and then in conversation with with a client not to be named we're we're having another conversation about what is the the best pieces of information to prove that a pharmacy is entity owned yeah. and is it truly a requirement that you have to list that pharmacy on the medicare cost report because there is some concern with listing a pharmacy, maybe specifically even a specialty pharmacy that might have some very large dollars associated with revenue that you don't want to add to your cost report for the total cost of care, which then can ultimately de decrease your hospital's reimbursement when cost reporting. You know, so we've had some internal discussions and, and Greg and I were, um, when looking at HERSA's data request list, it is not a requirement to have to have it be on the cost report. It is the easiest way to show that the pharmacy is entity owned, yes, but there are some hospitals that have concerns listing it on the cost report for certain reasons. So um, Greg, do you have some, you know, I know in your last podcast, you said the various pieces to, to show regarding ownership. Do you wanna weigh in on that anymore? Yeah, no, I think, you know, Hearst has been fairly, I think, flexible in accepting different types of documentation. I've had Hearst audits where we've provided screen caps from the Medicare cost report, and then there have been audits where we've just provided a copy of the pharmacy license and the insurance verification. And uh, there doesn't seem to be a standard that Hearst requires you to submit. So, you know, I think there's a lot of latitude, at least right now. And, you know, that's certainly something that HRSA could tighten up or they could provide more specificity in what they want to see moving forward. But I think right now there's there's a fair amount of flexibility. But if you have questions about your in-house retail pharmacy and how it's appearing on OPEs as a shipping address and whether or not you've got the right documents lined up to, to validate that, feel free to reach out to us. I'm sure we could sit down and uh, help answer some questions around that. And then I know not inside of the session that I attended, but then in addition, in our client event, kind of related to this, we we have clients who are asking us, so we want to change from wholly owned to contract pharmacy to in-house pharmacy. You know, what are some considerations when doing this? And there are some things such as contracts to watch out for. So does your state have legis legislation that protects you from um, 
PBMs that might decrease your reimbursement or, you know, so just watch your contracts. Um, you know, I don't know, Greg, were there some other considerations? I think, did we have some conversations about this? We did. Yeah. I think it's, you know, there's, you know, it's a, it's a balancing act between, you know, the, the value of having those pharmacies under separate, like a separate tax ID. So if they're non-entity owned, then they're not subject to GPO prohibition. So you mitigate, mitigate some of the whack expense. So if you were to bring those pharmacies under hospital ownership, you, I mean, you would incur some whack exposure, but then you also do have the flexibility of potentially carving those, those pharmacies yeah. in. So I think a lot of covered entities that are trying to neutralize the impact of the manufacturer restrictions right now are, are looking at initiatives of bringing in-house retail pharmacy operations to the greatest extent that you can. Yep. So looking at the mix of the patients served, yep. look at the contracts, right? Look at the payers, look at everything. Yep. So, I mean, in general, the move to in-house pharmacy, we definitely think is the way to go, but it might not be for all, but yep. in general, yes. Yeah. That's the in vogue kind of strategy. Now it's different than it was, you know, a handful of years ago where a lot of hospitals were trying to move those pharmacies off of the cost report again, to, uh, avoid some GPO prohibition issues and the whack expense, but it's a different different day today when we see this kind of an evaporation of the benefit of having contract pharmacies registered to your program. Now it'll change in the future if we've get if if Mitsui's bill goes through and we get some contract pharmacy provisions codified in law, or if the court uh, the the federal and appellate court cases roll in favor of covered entities. So we may not end up having to change in the future. But right now, you know, hospitals and health systems and health centers are are struggling with finances and. You know the conversion of external contract pharmacies to in-house entity-owned pharmacies is a is a big initiative that a lot of people are trying to trying to prioritize. All right, good. fantastic, great stuff, Greg. Yeah, well, it was nice catching up with you, Jennifer. It was great seeing you in person. We don't always get to see each other often throughout the year, so I love seeing seeing our team members and had a great time hanging out with you. Agree, great time, great time hanging out with all the staff and with all the fantastic clients that we got to meet and. Looking forward to seeing people again, perhaps at the next coalition. Great. All right. Take care, Jennifer. See you later. Yep. Bye. Hey, everyone. I'm here with Shakita Carter. Hi, Shakita. New member to the Spendman team. Welcome. Hi, Greg. Hi. Hi. We're so happy to have you. Tell, tell me and tell the folks that are listening uh, what your, your new role at Spendman looks like. Hi, so I'm excited to join the uh, Spendman team. My role is a 340B specialist, and that's on the staff augmentation side. So basically what the staff augmentation side is, we do monthly auditing, uh, sample auditing, and compliance resolution. Um, and then we also look at the client's monthly uh, accumulator monthly. Um, we look at everything from, we pull samples for physician-administered drugs, for retail and contract pharmacy dispensers. We look at the direct purchase documentations and make sure that that's all together. We look at the provider list. We do some updates to any crosswalks within the CPA. And then there's also some client referral capture. Awesome. So lots of uh, lots of skills needed in the uh, 340B compliance sector to, to do your job. And I think that ties in nicely with what we want to talk about today. Your actual first, I guess, kind of official day with us was uh, at the 340B Summer Coalition conference uh, in DC a couple of weeks ago. 
Yes, it was great. It was a de- great introduction to the team. <laughs> yeah. And you presented a topic on 340B inventory management for, for one of the tracks focusing on 340B program operations and compliance. Sh- share a little bit about what the, the takeaway points were from the presentation you gave for that educational session. Certainly. So I thought it was a good time for covered entities to look at and evaluate their um, some considerations with their 340B inventory, especially with the ending of the public health agreement and all of the manufacturing restrictions. A lot of uh, covered entities, their statuses are changing. So it was just a good time to reevaluate their inventory models and everything. Um, talked about some considerations with mixed-use settings, making sure they're tracking their waste and their documentation. Um, also t- talked about some considerations about if the covered entity does lose their 340B eligibility, what to do, whom to notify, what to do with the remaining um, 340B inventory. So I just went through a kind of basic overview of what to do and how to manage your 340B inventory to prevent any diversion. Yeah. Inventory management, I think, is a big challenge for a lot of hospitals and health systems and, and even clinics that maybe have a more complicated or complex drug distribution process. You know, one thing that's kind of come up in questions during audits I've had recently is um, how you manage direct orders. Any tips from your presentation on how to handle those those direct orders or the orders that you're getting from like a secondary supplier that aren't integrated into your your mixed use inventory? So I think that one of the biggest things, though, as you establish those contracts, you want to, if you can upload them, the contracts into your TPA or into um, your Rx processing system, you want to do that so that it is tracked some type of way. If not, you want to build like some type of a manual accumulator that is being maintained. Um, so yeah, you just want to make sure that you pay close attention to those. Awesome. Great tip. Borrowing and lending, another complicated thing for covered entities to get a hold of. Any any suggestions on tools that covered entities should look at when they're trying to figure out how to integrate policies and procedures around borrowing and transferring of drugs? So that's it's actually really interesting and um it's really complex. So the first the main thing that I will do is um, direct them to the Apexis tools. The um the Apexis resources has a great um if, like sort of like an, uh, a chart that you can use in order to determine which inventory can be transferred or borrowed within each. But because each covered entity is so different, I don't really like to go into the uh, like the like into the weeds of it, but sure, I yeah. definitely re- recommend everybody start with a, a Pexus resources. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's something that often comes up in the discussions when we have audits with with um, covered entities is Pexus has a great kind of decision matrix depending on where the drug's coming from to where it's going, yes. lots of different combinations of of that that transfer, and and they have a really nice tool that kind of outlines that stuff for you. Oh, it is. It's like it's really interesting because it's there's a lot of compliance issues with it, but if you can manipulate it correct, it's a lot of benefit to it as well. So the Pexus tool does kind of help you get the best benefit of, of the borrower transferring process. Awesome. Well, I had great feedback from staff that went to your presentation. Really appreciate you sharing a little bit of insight from from that discussion. What what else did you take away from the conference? What were some of the the big things that you learned or uh, discovered in attending some of the other sessions? What are some important things you've you've uh, you've gathered from from being at that 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 conference last week? So it was even it was pretty interesting um, going from. So I was able to attend the 
winter conference back in March and then just now this one in July, uh, which not a lot of time passed. So it was a lot of questions still about certain things about um, the IRA, you know, there was a lot of questions still about the repayment process. It, it was interesting to learn that there is a proposed repayment, uh, the hospital outpatient prospective payment remedy. There is a proposed um, remedy with um, a link on the CMS website to seek for cover entities to look and see if their uh, cover entity will be receiving yeah. that relief. So that was interesting to learn. Um, I went to, a t I heard a lot of talk about alternative distribution models as well and how there needs to be certain compliance rec uh, considerations there. Like some entities are kind of trying to go from holy, from contract pharmacy to wholly owned or in-house pharmacy to try to like, avoid some of these restrictions and stuff. So there's a lot of compliance issues with that. Um, so that's something that I'm, I'm going to have to do a lot more research on. But it's interesting to see how they're trying to kind of manipulate their entities to try to dodge uh, the reductions and everything. Yeah, I think and people, people are really needing to think outside the box and come up with creative solutions because the, the manufacturer restrictions and some of the other impact, maybe from COVID, the lingering impact from COVID is having a significant impact on hospital and, and clinic finances. So everybody's kind of looking to figure out how they need to evolve as, as restrictions keep piling up for covered entities. Yeah, and it was great to hear that because, again, as risky as it is, it could be really beneficial if you can find a way to, you know, figure, you know, own your own your pharmacy and still be compliant. So it was good information to hear. Yeah, great. What about advocacy? And being being close to Washington D.C. in the summer co conference, I think highlights. Uh, there's lots of discussion around the need to promote 340B advocacy. Lots of chatter in the in the Capitol Hill area around 340B price transparency. What did you take away from the conference around the need to kind of dig in and, and really advocate for 340B providers? So yes, definitely. Advocacy is definitely a big thing. Um, the participation in the Hill days. There's also, I've got some information actually from one of my former managers that's um, a part of the 340B Health Ambassadors Network, which is a new organization that 340B Health is um, has started to try to get hospitals or more hospitals and covered entities on board with advocacy. And then there's always just staying up to date, listening to the podcast, following, listening, reading the uh, newsletters, participating in the webinars. Um, all of that makes a big difference in the 340B space. You just have to know and you have to advocate for the program. Awesome. Great. Well, Shakita, it was great catching up with you. It was nice to meet you. There's so many team, uh, members on our team that I've actually never met uh, face to face, or all working kind of from our own virtual offices. So it was really nice to, to actually meet you right from the start. Definitely, I say I've said it so many times. That was an awesome welcome to any team. I don't think I've ever experienced a welcome like that. So to get to meet you guys and hang out with you guys, I did a lot of hanging out with the booth, which, which allowed me to learn more about the different um, services that Spendman provides outside of just the staff augmentation side. So it was really, it was a really great way to be introduced to the team. All right. Well, we're happy to have you on the team and I'm so happy you came on here to share what you learned from the conference. Thanks, Shakita. Thank you for having me, Greg. Hey, everyone. I'm here with Aaron Lee from Baptist Health. Hey, Aaron, how are you doing? Good. How are you, Greg? I'm doing well. First, uh, tell folks, what, what's your role in the 340B world? 
I am a 340B program coordinator at Baptist Health South Florida. So my role prior to being a coordinator, I was an analyst uh, who mostly did um, uh, managing the my assigned covered entities, which were two of our hospitals. We have like a total of um, seven dish hospitals and two critical access hospitals in the program. And so um, I audited and participated in HRSA audits, did the self audits for the covered entities, um, monitored purchases, and just built relationships with pharmacy leadership and the buyers at those sites to help them manage their program. And as a coordinator, I still have those duties uh, as far as analysts and can maintaining the relationship with leadership in the pharmacy and uh, also taking on some other projects as we grow our program. Yeah, we, I know we, we have uh, Leah from your team on, on the podcast before. Folks may know, I've worked with Aaron uh, closely. We worked virtually uh, for the last year or so since we did some, some external auditing with her um, her hospitals last year. But we got to meet for the first time in person, just kind of randomly at uh, Coalition, happened to be sitting next to each other during one of our sessions. This is your first time attending a 340B Coalition, correct? Yes, this was my first time um, attending it. So I was... Looking forward to it and and nervous, you know, yeah. uh, not knowing what to expect. Um, but I'm glad I did. Um, what were you What were you hoping to get out of going to coalition? Did you have any like goals or or objectives, things that you were trying to uh, you know learn about or people you were trying to network with at the conference? I think my experience, what I wanted to take out of it was to have some face-to-face interactions with our vendors. So it was good to see you. As you mentioned, we have a a lot of our meetings are remote and, you know, COVID just propelled that and we still maintain um, a lot of our relationships and meetings with our vendors remote. So it was good for me to be able to see them face-to-face, to to put a face to a name, run into you. Um, I also wanted to learn about other covered entities, how they're coping with manufacturer actions and what they're doing with alternative distribution models. Um, That's something I still try to visualize and understand, like, what what exactly does that look like? And it could look like, it seems like anything, depending on how you want to operationalize it. And it's like the wild, wild, wild west right now. Lots of, a lot of people trying to think outside the box because, you know, the manufacturer restrictions really hampering finances for a lot of hospitals. So yeah, a lot lot of chatter around alternate delivery models at Coalition. A lot of chatter and some who have dove in and some that are weighing whether or not they want to do it. And some have said, it sounds like they can't do it. So I also wanted to hear about the legislative actions, federal wise and state wise, what's, what's the chatter, what's going on and, um, you know, how, how other covered entities manage their program. Um, it was good to meet some people who have varying experience in the 340B program. You know, some are in, have been in there well over 15 plus years. Some are fresh. And um, it was good to hear that we kind of share, like we could be in different states, but we do experience the same kind of hiccups or nuances in the program that we yeah. have to manage, you know? So it's like, okay, we're not alone. <laughs> yeah, it gives you a sense of solidarity, especially when you're talking with somebody about a, a, a painful obstacle or some some challenge, you know, you're you're not alone, right? Yeah, we're not alone. Yeah. Well, how about um, sessions that you attended? Any, any ones that kind of stick out in your mind as, as being memorable in terms of things that you learned? Um. I attended some sessions about the Inflation Reduction Act and navigating contract pharmacy restrictions and 
um, hearing what others are doing with the central distribution model or considerations. But I think one presentation that really did stand, stand out was Susan Denser's presentation, Making Sense of the Silos in National Health Policy. Yeah. Um, that was my first time hearing her speak, and I was just like, wow, you know, just taken aback by all of the wealth of knowledge that she was sharing. So, you know, she made remarks about uh, COVID's impact on Medicare's solvency, and uh, she kept saying Congress admiring the problem, which, you know, yeah. it that is like, you know, I don't know why, it just stood out to me because I feel I'm like, yes, that's everybody chuckled at that because I think it's just like, yes, we want you to do something. Just don't look at it. And then um, the consolidation of the healthcare market, um, yeah. you know, just how more and more hospital systems or health systems and states are controlled by um, uh, different organizations. And so what is that doing to patient care? Is it resulting in be better patient care or is it raising the prices and, you know, yeah. what can be done? Yeah, I think that's going to be a focus probably when we hear, when we see legislative updates or at least debate about transparency in the 340B program moving forward is, you know, is there's consolidation in the in the marketplace, you know, these large health systems that have many nonprofit hospitals that are all participating mm -hmm. in the in the 340B program generate a lot of attention and there's a lot of chatter around whether those, you know, those types of organizations are meeting the spirit of the 340B program. I haven't seen any evidence to suggest otherwise. I know there's been we've seen some anecdotes written in the mainstream press you know, about some maybe bad actors in the 340B space, but certainly hosp large hospitals need to be prepared to, you know, engage in some discussion around 340B transparency. In the yes. Yes. That was something I heard uh, on the last day. I believe it was the Washington update, um, that presentation on the last day in the morning, and they were talking about transparency. That word, Kate, was mentioned a lot with Congress, you know, um, transparency, what are covered entities doing with their savings you know are they really giving back to the patient and then other other transparency towards um you know contract pharmacies what are you doing with your 340b prices so yeah. I I really enjoyed her presentation and if I get a chance to hear her speak again I would pretty much like to hear her speak again awesome any operational discoveries that you encountered there that you're taking back to the team there were a few and I one was um considerations to keep in mind if you have a health system owned pharmacy that you have a contract pharmacy relationship with and changing that into a hop. Um, I believe there was an audience member who spoke about or the presenter spoke about, you know, think about the WAC impact. You yeah. know, now you have a hop, you know, serving patients that wouldn't be eligible, like your employee prescriptions in your contract pharmacy, they would probably just go to the, you know, your GPO side. But um now that you have a hop, maybe now they would, what's that wax spin? What's that impact? What is that going to look like? Will you yes. continue to fill those prescriptions? And then um, another was something that was said about the alternative distribution models. Um, thinking about or reaching out to your wholesaler, if you're considering this model, is there anything in your contract with that wholesaler to prevent that? And I believe an audience member mentioned language in the contract own use. Um, you know, and I took that away as maybe that prevented them from sure. going forward with that type of model. These whole alternate distribution models, but in so many different like logistical 
and regulatory kind of question marks. I think a lot, yeah. lot of really, you know, a lot of uncertainty out there. So it's hard to, I think, adopt one of these models without a really high degree of confidence that you're one, satisfying HRSA's, you know, requirements, but two, not exposing any other type of regulatory risk. So I think that's something we're going to try to talk about on our podcast in the future after we get some some insights from, from some other experts out there. So definitely yeah. a hot topic. And knowing your state laws, um, yeah. if you change it, if you go into that model, you know, what does your, your state laws say about that? Are you yeah. a distributor? Do you need that license? Yeah, do you and, need a separate license or something like that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then um, just for personal growth, I wanted to hear more about the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, it's, it's, I know it has impacts on 340B, but I wanted to understand a little bit more, see the bigger picture. So it was interesting to hear about how that law has penalties preventing, meant to prevent um, the manufacturers from raising their prices. You know, it's the, about controlling the cost. And yeah. if they do that, you know, those inflationary penalties, could that have some sort of downstream effect on covered entities seeing fewer penny buys? Because, you know, I believe the presenter tied that into the inflationary penalty that comes into play when those penny buy prices are calculated. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the max, well, I think it was maximum fair price. Yeah, um, yeah, the, the, the Medicare negotiated price, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Could that be used instead of AMP when calculating your 340B ceiling price? And um, the takeaway was that from the presenters, I was, um, we are talking largely about Medicare and Medicare's, you know, role or goal in trying to control costs um, for those beneficiaries, but could your other commercial payers follow suit? You know, yeah. if Medicare does this, will the commercial payers follow suit? And so does that mean that they'll change how they calculate their ceiling price as well? But because there's court actions happening surrounding this law, will any of this happen? You know, you don't you don't really know unless until the courts decide. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a, still a few years away before the maximum fair price is going to be available. But, but one question, I'm I'm curious to understand how this, like, how is that price going to be made available, particularly to dish covered entities? Because, you know, right now you've got, if you're a dish hospital subject to GPO prohibition, you've got a WAC account. It's kind of mm -hmm. your neutral, your neutral account, your, your back end account, your 340B account for outpatient, and then your GPO account for, for inpatient. Well, now if you're buying drugs for your Medicare beneficiaries that are eligible for the maximum fair price? Are we talking about a quadruple split? Is there going to be a fourth account set up with wholesalers uh, to get access to that maximum fair price? Or are the covered entities going to have to seek some type of retrospective rebate to um, to collect the, the maximum fair price discount? So operationally, mm -hmm. still don't really understand how at the point of sale, the the maximum fair price is going to compete operationally with the 340B price. But I went to, I think I went to just about every IRA session that was there. So Jeff Davis, the uh, the attorney that had done a fair amount of the presentations on IRA, I thought he did, did a great job just kind of summarizing the whole um, Inflation Reduction Act issue, as well as the CMS Part B saga, you know, the mm -hmm. reimbursement cuts and then all the remedy payments that are out there in proposed rule. So um, lots of good discussion on those two items. All right. What what about your yourself for the rest of the summer? You got anything fun planned? Just gonna get through this road trip. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're 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 venturing out into the great unknown, I guess. Yeah. With family now, right? Heading out, doing some PTO, a little bit of camping. Yeah. 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 Right. Well, yeah. 
hopefully it's it's uh it's been really really hot down in uh south florida for the past couple of days so i'm hoping it's summer it's gonna be hot regardless but i'm just hoping it's just a little less hot the more north we go <laughs> yeah yeah it takes some bug, bug spray too the yeah bugs are, the bugs are rough this time of year down there so yeah yeah mm. so you know my my husband likes to hike i'm not much of a hiker he likes to go on nature trails and i'm you know i'll go <laughs> with him you know you know, just to get the blood flowing. But then if I get, if it's just too uncomfortable, I'll just be like, you're on your own. <laughs> I'm going to go, go back. Sit, sit by the water somewhere with a cold, cold yeah. drink. Yeah. I'll meet you here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Aaron. It was really nice meeting you at the conference. It's been a pleasure working with you. And I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your insight this week. Thank you so much. It was nice seeing you too. All right. Enjoy the rest of your summer. We'll catch up soon. All right. Take care. Hey there, we're here with Nan Campadu from the Memorial Healthcare System in South Florida. I've worked with her quite a bit. Hey, Nan, how are you doing? Hey, Greg. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm so glad that you were willing to come on and talk a little bit about the experience you had at the, the coalition. I know you presented uh, one of the breakfast sessions. You also got an early morning slot for, for your presentations. Sometimes those are, those are hard to get up for, but uh, uh, I heard good things about your discussion on kind of the role of the pharmacy technician in the 340B program. Tell me a little bit about what you shared with uh, the attendees. Oh, awesome. I'm glad I got some good feedback. Um, so this breakfast, it was a technician breakfast. It focused on uh, spotlighting our pharmacy technicians. And um, my particular section that I was speaking on was the professional development opportunities available for technicians. Because I think, as we know, it's so much different today than it was what, like 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, a lot more opportunities out there. Yeah, even through COVID, you know, as, as businesses right. shifted to more remote work or virtual work, I mean, that opened up opportunities for, uh, for, for technicians and pharmacists and other folks in the healthcare industry to kind of move away from a traditional role into a virtual role. So you're, you're really competing with some really progressive uh, work environments, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let's. Uh, I, I want to learn more about w what you guys do at, at your hospital system because I've worked with your team. You guys have an amazing team of technicians. So many folks hired from within. So many folks have kind of been on a, a pharmacy technician career path. You've built a really extensive career ladder for folks that are in a technician role to um, kind of move through the various elements or the, the various roles of uh, somebody being involved in the 340B team. Tell me a little bit about how that has been created, because that's, that's not something that a lot of health systems do, and that's relatively new to you guys within the last couple of years, right? Yes, it is. So it really started out with one person on 340B team, um, Sharita. She was uh, the everything on the team. She did everything of, you know, registration, auditing, and then it started expanding. So it was her and one other team member. Um, then we got a program manager. And then from there, they started trying to promote from within. Um, so Melissa came on board. Um, so we had two auditors, um, a program manager and a program coordinator. So it, that's where the structure started. I came on board um, when one of the other auditors left. So we had, as a, yeah, for, for a good while, it was just two auditors, myself and Melissa, our program coordinator, Sharita, who is pretty much the liaison between 
the contract pharmacies and mixed use space. And then, um, of course, our program manager, um, Alex. And then we all started changing up the structure a little bit. So Alex became our director. Uh, Sharita is now program supervisor. Melissa and I got promoted into program coordinator roles. And then we each have now auditors under us. So we have, at this moment in time, I believe we have six internal auditors. Hold on, I have to count that. Yeah, six internal auditors. We just hired two. Hang on a second, Greg. It's actually more than that. (laughs) It's it's the program expanding so much. (laughs) Let's see. So we also expanded our um, external contract pharmacy space. So we have two auditors under there. We have three auditors for our internal contract pharmacy space, and we have one internal auditor for our mixed-use space um, and clean sites. I mean, it's. I think it's a lot, maybe compared to some other health systems who are struggling to recognize the importance of staffing up a 340B team. But I think it's right-sized given, you know, the size of your health system as well as the complexity, right. of the different 340B covered entities that are working within the health system. Yep. And then um, we're actually in the process of hiring three more just because we've been expanding our contract pharmacy space this year. Not not great timing, but... Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> the health is needed. What about training? So that's a lot of people to get up and running, not just on the like the day-to-day tactics of managing, you know, the the 340B program, but understanding the nuances of 340B. So there's very little granular detail out there or black and white rules for covered entities to follow. A lot of it comes down to interpretation of statute and subregulatory guidance. How do you guys educate these um, these individuals to be familiar with um, the compliance needs of the health system under the 340B program? We do kind of start with the boring stuff, which is the policies. Um, It is mandatory for everybody on our team to begin with reading our policies. Um, Prior to reading the policies, though, everyone on our team does have to take 340B University. That's a great precursor, especially for some of our auditors who are not really, um, you know, that that well-versed on 340B. 340B University is a great starting point for them. Um, So then they read through our policies and procedures to try to get a good understanding of how we apply 340B to our healthcare system. Um, And then from there, we start fine-tuning the training to whatever whatever their focus is going to be. So if it's going to be on the mixed-use side, like um, what specific, po- how do we practice those policies and procedures on that end? And if it's going to be on the contract pharmacy side or the clean site side, how do they um, specifically focus on practicing the policy on those ends uh, or that end? Um, and then we also have training checklists. Um, we also have, Sharita does um, our program, our program uh, supervisor does a 340B program overview for all new team members. And she also actually trains all any any purchasing technicians that will be coming on board at Memorial as well. Oh, great! So, uh, so training is not restricted to just the 340B team. 340B training is for anyone that's going to touch any type of purchasing or you know have um, any type of involvement in the program at all. 
Yeah. And yeah, I know you talked about hard and soft skills that pharmacy techs need to kind of master in order to su- succeed in the, in the, like in the 340B space, specifically about hard skills, Excel, you know, so much of what we do is just, you know, regarding it's all, it's all about data, you know, data from your TPAs, data from your purchasing accounts, data from, you know, the OPA database, a lot of it's all manipulated in Excel. What, how, how do you guys approach you know, uh, development of the Excel skills that are needed to be a, a really well, um, kind of well-functioning uh, 340B analyst? It's mostly hands-on training. Like I will, if there's anything that we need to do on Excel, I usually show um, our, our newer trainees on, you know, what functions that we use that would be more helpful. And we also open up the floor, like just because you're new doesn't mean you can't teach us something. So we always like emphasize with our team, if there's something you know that we may not know about, tell us because we want to implement it into our workflow if it's going to help with, um, you know, time management, you know, saving or saving time or, you know, uh, with our efficiency. And to be quite honest with you, I'm still learning. I'm still learning a lot about Excel because when I first came on board, I didn't even know how to filter an Excel spreadsheet. And I like to tell my new team members that because sometimes it can be very overwhelming if you go from a front end type of position where, you know, maybe you're the buyer or you're in retail and then you come on board to, you know, become an auditor for the 340B team. Excel can be very daunting. So I love telling them, like, listen, when I got here, I didn't know how to filter an Excel spreadsheet. So you're already ahead of me. Um, <laughs> and then from there, um, YouTube videos help. Um, I, I actually have a few select YouTube videos that I, I use for training. Um, so I have them watch it first. And then the practical application of any of those specific functions is what works best, where I have my team member actually show me. I show them first, and then they do the teach back method where they show me um, how to do what I just did. So that is the best way, in my opinion, to learn about Excel. Yeah. YouTube is a goldmine for tips and tricks on different Excel formulas. I feel like yeah. once a week I'm, I'm looking up a YouTube video to figure out how to, you know, slice and dice so, some data in a large Excel file. So I think it's a good. Yeah. Or even the, there's a few um, uh, Instagram pages that I follow and they'll, yeah. they'll have little reels on there and little tips and tricks on Excel. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, I, that's probably a great space for, uh, you know, a 340B expert to be in is, you know, kind of showing you know, through social media how you can, you know, manage all these these different data sets. So I don't know, man, maybe that's, uh, you know, a side gig for you is, you know, becoming a, an Instagram 340B Excel influencer. So. Hmm, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> or TikTok. I'm, yeah. just, I'm starting to, you know, dabble in TikTok just a little bit. I'm not very good at it yet. There's a lot of video editing. I'm not sure I'm cut out for that. Um, well, I'm, <laughs> I, I know I'm older than you. So what would, you know, is, as in, you know, maybe as, I don't want to say how old I am, but maybe as an older millennial, I watch my TikToks and Instagram, right? Isn't that what the, the old? I do too. <laughs> I mostly do that. Yeah. I just like TikTok format of, you know, like they make it pretty easy to edit your videos, but I'm still not great at it. So I'm learning. I have to learn from my, my Gen Z cousins. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about other stuff that you picked up from the the coalition. It was a little bit of a, a, a smaller fair, I think, this year. They, the numbers were down, probably due to you know staff, you know budget cuts, people having some trouble getting freeing up money to to travel. The winter coalition was late in March, so you know it's real close in proximity to the winter coalition. So um, we've talked to a few folks, and they felt that it just seemed like a bit smaller. 
um, fewer vendors, fewer attendees, but I still found the the whole conference to be to be really helpful, not just for networking, but all the education. What were a few takeaways that you um, you gained from being at the conference this year? Really, I would say the biggest takeaway for me is um, really the political climate of 340B right now, um, because I'll tell you, reading articles is not the same as sitting there and hearing for yourself um, from, you know, legal or from some of the the other the other speakers that were there. So that was a, a lot more impactful for me because sometimes I find it hard to sit there and read an article and like get the true impact of what's going on from the article. And this was my first in-person coalition. So oh, like sitting there and yeah, actually listening to a speaker um, talk about how uh, this is really impacting, like the, the 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 current state of 340B is impacting us is is very impactful. Yeah, I, I like, I agree with you. I like, you know, especially the, you know, I, I've not been to the winter uh, coalition conference, but the the summer one, I really enjoy. And I think it's because of the proximity to DC and being by the Capitol and just there's just this vibe about the importance of advocacy and, you know, making sure that we're, you know, advocating for the 340B program to our congressional delegates. Really, really important. Love the discussions that take place at the Summer Coalition around kind of what's happening in Washington and where we think the, you know, legislative changes might, you know, what, what legislative changes we might see with the 340B program. I feel like you get you get that really um, kind of great kind of political background uh at the summer summer conference so i'm so glad you got to have your first experience at the dc one and everybody likes the the winter coalition go to san diego california in the middle of the winter <laughs> that's probably not as enticing to you being in south florida but um you know glad that you were able to to, to make the trip what, what what do you got planned for the rest of the summer non-340b related Anything fun, <laughs> any fun plans well, let's up? see i don't know i think I, I used up all my vacation points already uh, i went to vegas pretty recently that was my first time there that was awesome <laughs> i highly recommend did you play any games when you were in vegas or did you just go just go for i played a few slots okay. however that's not a good idea i would not yeah. recommend <laughs> <laughs> i would stick to poker next time because i feel like at least that you have a little bit of influence on your your, your winnings <laughs> a little more strategy maybe yeah a little bit more strategy yeah, yeah. or blackjack <laughs> Good. All right, Nan. Well, it was great catching up with you. It was really nice seeing you in person at the the coalition conference. Again, thanks for sharing all the insight from your your talk on um, professional development of pharmacy technicians. Really important for health systems to be thinking about right now, especially as they're struggling with with staff shortages. You need to you know implement some some enrichment programs, and you need to think about career ladder for technicians in order to retain good good staff. So, really appreciate the uh, the content that you shared. Thank you so much, Greg. Thanks for inviting me. All right. Take care, Nan. Bye. Hey there, I'm here with Pooja Shaw from University of North Carolina. Hey, Pooja, how are you doing? I'm well, Greg. How are you? I'm well. It was good seeing you at the conference. We're almost a couple of weeks out now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was a, a great great conference. It was my second time visiting um, or attending that yeah. conference. I've been to DC plenty of times, but it, it certainly uh, was really nice to connect with so many people that I had met last year. Yeah. Um, 
and, and really uh, be able to remember names now. Um, yeah, yeah. Connecting easily. faces faces to names uh, for your email if you're working with vendors or other covered entities. Sometimes it's all just virtually through Zoom or, or over email. So it's always nice to meet in, meet in person. You and I got to meet for the first time in person. So Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, you, you, um, we're going to talk a little bit about what you presented at one of the educational sessions. But I guess I'll jump right to a question about what, um, what insights you gathered just from your attendance of the conference and networking is great, but from an educational perspective, did you learn about anything or are there any anecdotes that you picked up on that you're taking back to, to UNC with you? Yeah, um, definitely a couple different insights. So I'm glad to report, I did not hear of any drama occurring, um, but certainly uh, the biggest, some of the biggest insights was um, really around the manufacturer restrictions that have been ongoing and have just re reached a new level of intensity was very apparent um, in the atmosphere and climate yeah. at conference. And um, it, it really was illuminating um, to always be reminded that you're not alone in this, in this journey. Um, you know, and as we talk about 340B manufacturer restrictions, um, you know, there are a lot of conversations around alternative delivery strategies and and just hearing from others um, that are exploring this option. It was quite apparent that each uh, contract pharmacy vendor seems to be approaching it differently. Um, some are providing more structured guidance versus others are not. And it was hard to or anecdotally, what I heard was it's quite hard to get a concrete answer. So that was a, yeah. a big insight as um, we continue to have um, executive level discussions around mitigation strategies um, internally. Um, and, you know, the, the content was certainly good. Uh, it was good to have some refreshers around recertification um, even um, before the official webinar that comes out, I think next week by 340B Health. Um, but yeah, that that the the manufacturer restrictions, climate, and some of the challenges around alternative delivery strategies was probably the biggest insight yeah. that I gained. Yeah, uh, lots of lots of kind of you know chatter, but not a lot of like concrete guidance or suggestions or real like executable operational discussion it's all kind of like how's how are people interpreting the compliance of these different delivery models or the alternate distribution strategies i think there were just you know so people are really interested in it, but there's not a lot of great information out there around how you, you execute some of these kind of outside of the box uh strategies and i think that's what people are really looking for at this point before they can move forward yeah i think we're all just spinning our wheels to be quite honest yeah. um in trying to to honestly survive um, this climate that we're in. Um, but yeah, I also found it interesting. Um, I, I think ESP had been a part of the conference, uh, at least since I've attended uh, last year, but I thought it was helpful that they provided sessions um, where they were open to receiving feedback. I think that was quite helpful. Um, so not necessarily an insight, but it was a nice, um, thing to witness and, yeah. and be part of um at conference it was quite yeah, I mean, yeah, even as as that the opportunity to use esp to kind of pick up some voluntary pricing in the contract pharmacy space that that that, that opportunity is 
slowly evaporating as the manufacturers tighten up their restrictions. But it was nice to see them come forward with some um, some re- receptiveness to feedback from the the provider stakeholders. Yeah, absolutely, sure. All right. Well, let's talk about what you talked about. So you had a nice presentation around what I think is a, a hot topic, for, particularly for larger health systems that are trying to be more effective in managing inventory across multiple service locations. You know, t- tell me a little bit about what, what you talked about. Yeah. So I had the, the honor of talking about, um, to your point, central distribution considerations for health systems. So if you were actually going to implement a, a central distribution center or what we call at UNC Health, the Shared Services Center, or SSC, um, what would it take, right? And in my segment really focused on more of the broader considerations to, to operationalizing uh, yeah. uh, central distribution, while my colleague, uh, Jake, focused more on the, the 340B covered entity perspective. Uh, but I did my best to, to set him up and, and kind of sprinkle in some, some food for thought um, as well. But, you know, when I think about my content in, in my objective, I focused on some three key areas um, based on my experiences uh, around shared services centers. And, and a lot of it is surrounding regulations, um, formulary management and inventory management. Uh, so three very, very big uh, areas to cover. Um, but, you know, when we think about regulations, a lot of us that are wearing that 340B compliance hat can appreciate that we got to stay on top of regulations, but there's just so many to factor in when actually operationalizing a central distribution model. Um, And so certainly it entails pharmacy licensing, but also need to evaluate if um, you perhaps need a wholesaler license, especially if you are a multi-state health system. Mm Um, that can certainly be a consideration. If you plan to to compound, do you you know and have a 503B operation uh, that would certainly then put you into under the purview of FDA and having to prepare from that angle. If you plan to to distribute or prepare controlled substances, DEA licensure and and having that regulatory body would also be another important um, layer to your to your operation model. And then um, DQSA or the Drug Quality and Security Act is certainly a hot topic. It's going live November 27th. Um, so just a few days after Thanksgiving. And um, that is certainly that's certainly something that needs to be factored in as you um, go live with your, your model. Um, at UNC Health, I'll say we have kind of a short-term plan uh, to, to then bridge us to the actual effective date, and, and that would implement our long-term strategy. But um, internally, it's, it's, a, it's a large work group of people dedicated um, to, to figuring this out and ensuring that it works within our SSC model, and then for our covered entities, as well as our non-340B hospitals um, as well. Yeah. Um, you mentioned formulary management. So I'm, I'm sure, you know, part of, you know, this 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 model of, uh, you know, a shared service center or CSC only works if you've, you know, developed some structure for um, standardization of, of NDC utilization and formulary management across multiple campuses. Tell me a little bit of how that works at your organization? 
Yeah. So around the time that RSSC was um, fully live, um, and, and I say fully with quotations because it's been a gradual scaling up, but physically the building um, was ours in approximately 2014. That's really when the effort started to create that system, pharmacy and therapeutics, our P&T committee infrastructure, to be able to execute on formulary standardization. Um, it's the approach that we've taken at UNC Health has been a gradual one for standardization, uh, but I've certainly seen organizations kind of do a, a, a very um, tight timeline of six months or 12 months and, and completely standardize their formulary. Uh, but there's pros and cons to both approaches that I've seen. Uh, but it, it having a standardized formulary, and Greg, you shared that you you had the 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 task of of being that person at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, it it really plays an important role and has so many different um, tentacles and in, in the way that it can impact your your approach and your scaling of your shared services center. You know, the obvious benefits are you're going to likely reduce costs and expenses. You're going to reduce your physical footprint and ideally in turn have uh, an easier uh, time managing your inventory. But there are layers like drug shortage management. By yeah. having a standardized formulary, you now can really scale how you approach drug shortages, which seem to just continue to be worse and worse every year that I practice. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, we think about this Pfizer plant that um, experienced their tornado in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. They're responsible for 8% of injectable products production. Yeah. That's major. That's, and so, a huge, that's a huge hit to the supply the supply chain out there for injectables. Right. And so if you have a standardized formulary, you now can strategically shift inventory um, to the hospitals that need it or have greater use of it for their patients. You, you can have a more concerted effort around how you mitigate uh, drug shortages versus everyone kind of doing their own thing. It, it even plays into um, your EHR maintenance. Yeah. Uh, at UNC Health, we uh, have one EHR and it has to be the same build, same change across the system. Yeah. Yeah. So conceivably, your, your providers are working off of the same formulary file wherever they're going. So they've, you know, they're, they're used to kind of a standard kind of menu of, of options to select from that also helps with, you know, clinical decision support. You can help guide physicians to, you know, making correct selections when they're prescribing therapy. And, you know, ultimately I think there's been some peer review literature out there that shows there's, there's actually clinical benefit and you see fewer medication errors and safety events when, when you can kind of align your, your EHR to a, standardized formulary across multiple campuses. So there's, in addition to the cost savings that you described, there's also some clinical outcomes improvement that's, that's likely to be yielded from, uh, from, from, you know, establishing standardized formulary structure. Absolutely. Um, you know, by having a standardized formulary or working towards one, um, you know, I was previously responsible for clinical guideline management, primarily at our flagship hospital in Chapel Hill, but by having standardization of formulary, we could start expanding those clinical guidelines to yeah. be at the system level. But 
that is contingent upon having a, a standardized formulary. Um, but to your point, it drives um, better outcomes in the long run. Yeah. Uh, so definitely multiple different angles uh, that formulary management plays a role. And um, really when I think about physical uh, like operations for your central distribution or SSC model, it's just smoother. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's one one of the items that you you brought up at the beginning. It's it's really downstream of the the formulary decision making process is inventory management. What are some of the obstacles you might encounter in a CSC or shared service center with regard to how you're managing all that inventory for many different providers? Yeah. So when it comes to inventory management, I would highly advocate for investing with in automation software to to manage your inventory. It's honestly inconceivable to me to have to manually maintain that and kudos to to organizations who do that. But um, if you can be an advocate for automation software, one that gives you better line of sight and one that certainly allows you to uh, effectively manage your 340B program. I think that's been a uh, hindsight 2020 for us as an organization is we had or we continue to have an inventory management software, but over time, as it's been close to 10 years of having our shared services model live, we've realized some of the gaps um, in in our oversight of that inventory system and and what we really need is something that can is is more sophisticated and can also help us better manage uh, line of sight with our uh, 340B eligible clinics and, and covered entities that um, play into to effective inventory management um, as well. Yeah, speak, speaking of 340B compliance, we don't have to get into the, the nuts and bolts of it, but you know, if you're a organization, you're, you're thinking about standing up shared service center or CSC for your 340B hospitals, maybe some that are you know, GPO prohibition hospitals, some that are not non 340B hospitals, maybe some non, you know, non-hospital provider-based clinics. What, you know, I imagine this is going to give, you know, the 340B folks out there some heartburn thinking about how you, how you manage that from a compliance perspective. What are, what are some, some pearls of wisdom that you would offer to others in terms of monitoring your CSC activity for 340B program non-compliance? Yeah, what I will say is I, I'm having heartburn with all of you as well. It's still it's still not an easy, easy thing to to manage. But you know, high level, uh, like I mentioned, technology. Invest in your technology and your IST resources, um, along with ensuring that you have dedicated 340B resources to take on this level of oversight um, from an CSC standpoint. You know, it, it's really a complex world when you start diving into having a CSC model and having to service a, a mixture of, of 340B and non-340B covered entities. Um, but it really involves around um, ensuring that your stakeholders are fully aware of the implications, right? So if you're um, if you have a strategic sourcing or contracting team, ensuring that they're knowledgeable and looping you into conversations where there's a letter of commitment being signed or evaluated for contracting opportunities as it relates to your CSC, um, because really you should only have one 
LOC or letter of commitment per covered entity, and the verbiage needs to be accurate to prevent GPO prohibition. Yeah. Um, other things are like ensuring that you are involved with uh, drug shortage management strategies, especially when you start transferring inventory. Um, that that can become tricky, yeah. uh, and and really being a part of those conversations related to purchasing accounts and creation. Those are some of the things that come to mind. And other things I would mention uh, is, you know, being cognizant and, and being a part of conversations as to what inventory model you choose for your CSC uh, will have implications for your 340B compliance, right? Whether you go with a WAC inventory approach, which is probably the safest of all, but it's also the biggest financial burden. Yep. Or if you go with GPO inventory with replenishment, right, you're going to certainly have to establish oversight uh, to ensure compliance with um, more complex inventory models like the the latter one that I mentioned, where, yeah, it has the most benefit in terms of 340B savings, but the complexity of actually overseeing that is uh, is a beast. <laughs> wow. Lots to think about. Yeah. Pooja, thank you again for taking time to catch up after Coalition. All the info that you you presented at the conference and your summary today is really helpful to folks. What do you got planned for the rest of the summer? Anything fun lined up? Well, uh, summer is flying by, but uh, right on the cusp of fall, I'm going to India for the first time in like, oh, fantastic. I think over 10 years. And I am so excited because it's it's a family wedding and I'm just ready to to take like a two and a half week hiatus uh, and and be unreachable. Yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. Off the grid, right? Yes, off the grid. Yeah. Uh, but I totally trust my team to to make sure the wheels on the bus stay stay and, and we're, we're compliant in those two and a half weeks. But yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to the most oh. uh, in the next few months. Excellent. Great. All right. Well, enjoy your time off when you you finally get to enjoy that. Um, thanks again for catching up with us. And um, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Yeah, it was great talking to you, Greg. Thanks, Pooja. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.